Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. This episode, Sandman number 12, The Doll's House Part 3, Playing House, cover date January 1990. Art is by guest penciler Chris Bacello, who many people who were reading comics at the time were familiar with his work that was ongoing on Shade the Changing Man, which was a comic I had actually started reading before I started reading Sandman. Uh, both would later be in the Vertigo imprint from DC Comics. And do you know why he, he guessed it on this issue? Uh, I don't know the backstory of that. So my guess is that either they wanted to try him out in some different areas or it was that Mike Jurgenberg didn't have as much time or I, I don't know the background. So they were – they're always trying to experiment with uh, slightly different styles. And as we go, we'll see some switching up that occurs a little later on intentionally of artists. And the the style in this issue is a little bit different from those that came before. I mean, clearly, if we've got a, a new artist, that's going to be a part of that. But it also does feel like this is uh, taking place in a in a setting that we really maybe just haven't seen too much of before, or at least much of this story is taking place in that setting, and maybe needed to look a little bit different than than some of the previous issues have. And there are big happenings in this issue as well. I mean, this is a pretty important issue. But I think the thing that's most important about this issue is that we are actually in the 1990s now. The 19 90s are finally here. Uh, and that excites me to no end. It's like we're walking into Portlandia's set. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. In fact, literally, right. The dream of the 90s is present here in this comic book. Uh, that is a pun that I will, uh, I'll never live down and I apologize for it immediately, but I'm keeping it in. Uh, I will note, uh, for those who are longtime Sandman fans, Chris Pacello did uh, some additional Sandman work in later issues. He also is fairly well known for the Death, the High Cost of Living miniseries, the Death Limited comic series that came out later. He, I believe, did the um, initial pencils for all of those issues. So um, his depiction of death is often – the more – I don't want to say canonical because they're all canonical, but the more readily imagined when you're trying to recall a particular image of the character of death. Yes, absolutely. That's that's the depiction of death that I think of uh, immediately is is his – well, should we get into this uh, this issue where a lot of things are going to happen, uh, where our stories are going to start to really mash together in this one? And kicking things off, so we start with a opening of Lita, uh, and it actually looks like it's a reverse shot where – Based on the coloration, uh, it appears like she's – it's the mirror version of her looking back at herself as she is combing her hair and thinking about kind of her life in the Dream Dome with her husband and how, you know, she misses being close to him and he seems very busy with work. And for those who are interested, Leslie Klinger's Annotated Sandman has uh, quite a bit of uh, text um, from Neil himself explaining where they were trying to come up with the focal point for this issue. Um, and I'm not going to read through all of that, um, but I do encourage folks to check it out if they get a chance. But for a little while, apparently, Neil struggled with kind of whose perspective to tell the comic from until finally he realized, well, no, no, this one's about Lita. And – this story really is about Lita. And in particular, in the context of for Doll's House, um, where Neil says, quote, is basically an extended essay about the roles of people in houses and also about the role and treatment and ignoring of women in contemporary society. And so then he realized, well, wait, then, of course, the story has to be about Lita. And he goes on to explain that. 
Um, we're supposed to think of Lita as the kind of highly capable, uh, smart, intelligent woman who, for whatever reason, when she ends up finding herself married and then pregnant, seems to kind of close off from the rest of the world and seems less engaged. Um, and it, it almost is kind of a sad tale of someone who seems to have put their own life somewhat on hold as they're waiting for their husband to go through their daily churn of excitement and, and spouting out of kind of campy 19, um, 60s and 70s Adam West dialogue, which uh, apparently Neil Gaiman also said was intentional, that the lines he very much was writing for Lita's husband should all be read in, in your head, kind of as if it's Adam West as Batman reading these kind of dorky lines that are intentionally so. <laughs> yeah, that's that's absolutely perfect, right? That's that. In fact, I think that was actually the voice that I was doing in my in my head, and and just reading them all right with the the exclamation point, you know, really, uh, really a part of the the delivery of that. Well, that that's really fascinating because it had jumped out to me, and it was almost seemed jarring that you know the story is taking place in the dream world that Bruton Glob. Had have constructed in Jed's mind. And previously, we've really just seen that through Jed's eyes or, you know, from Jed's point of view, but it's almost jarring that this opens from the point of view of Lita. So I'm glad that that was a clearly self-conscious choice here. And it's true that, that we see her not doing very well. I mean, she uh, seems as if she's someone suffering from a fairly severe depression in which she's able to have lots of thoughts about things, but isn't able to, to, muster an emotional response to things and and here even in just these first two pages we follow her around the the dream dome here as she's looking for hector and as we follow her around right there's i I guess a real sense of sadness here there are a couple things that are are on her mind And, and one of them in particular is that her relationship with hector doesn't seem to be real anymore it certainly doesn't have like a depth or an intimacy right they they don't have sex anymore she says but she also says that, it, that even if she could she she wouldn't want to because she's so far along in her pregnancy but through all of this she just doesn't seem fully coherent to me right she seems like a person who is awake but still stuck in a dream that she just woke up from right i think we, we've all experienced that before right? she's just not completely present in this world yeah she's she's a very passive character in her own life which is really sad. And it it is a strong way to approach the story rather than giving us a return to any of the adventures of Jed and Nemo land or whatever it was (laughs) called last issue. So we're done with that. This is back to kind of a tragic, somewhat horror story comic in some ways. So um, it's, uh, it's got a very kind of dire tone to it. And Hector's just living in a totally different world, right? And he really comes across in this issue, or at least certainly in this scene and and the few scenes coming up, uh, like a little kid who's just having a great time playing his imagination game and just has no idea that there are real serious traumas happening to other people around him. He is just really living in his own world. And, you know, when, when Lita actually gets to Hector here, in this scene, he's really excited about the fact that, you know, the alarms are blaring as, uh, you know, a monster is coming to get them. It's uh, he calls it a 10 alarm nightmare heading this way. Of course, we know that that's dream who's on his way to get Bruton glob and destroy this, I guess, pocket dreaming or like sort of pocket 
universe of, of some sort. And Brut and Glob know this too. That's very clear here. But they are trying to, to get Hector to battle Dream. And so they are also hamming it up, uh, you know, kind of talking to him on the same level. Like they're doing their own kind of Adam West thing. And they're really just manipulating him. And I love here that they explain that this nightmare that is coming is actually just called the Nightmare Monster from the Underid and that he's one of the hereditary foes of the Sandman. And they're just making this up as they go. And I I love the way that they do this. There's also this real sense here like of, of them, of Brut and Glob. There's like a real depiction here of them as 1920s New York gangsters, right? They've even got that ridiculous accent and totally not out of place in the Adam West Batman. Yeah, it, it's great. Um, and the Leslie Klinger Sandman notes that uh, connected with his first appearance uh, in this particular issue of Hector standing and looking at a bunch of monitors. That is the Universal Dream Monitor that was provided by the U.S. government to um, Hector's predecessor as Sandman, um, uh, Mr. Sanford, who was Garrett Sanford, who was revealed to be the Sandman in the early 80s in a Wonder Woman comic. Um, later, it turns out that um, – he actually killed himself, uh, which is mentioned uh, a little bit later in an Infinity Incorporated comic. Infinity Incorporated was a group that uh, Lita and Hector were involved with. Most of them were the children of superheroes is kind of the Infinity Incorporated background. But uh, the comic kind of occasionally did not go as dark as Vertigo went, but it went a little bit darker than sometimes you'd get out of um, a little bit more emotionally invested than sometimes you'd get out of your more kind of four color DC Superman shining city on the hill kind of uh, storyline. But I just love this depiction of him standing there uh, in front of the um, monitors. And uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, he's he's acting like a child who's just playing grown up and loving every minute of it. And they're just making up nonsense over his shoulder um, and spouting it to him. And he reminds me a lot. I heard Adam West, but I was thinking of Billy Batson, who was Captain Marvel, now also known as Shazam, who is literally a child who can turn himself into someone with Superman's powers, plus other things as well, um, but who just kind of says these cornball kind of statements, which recently I've been reading um, the uh, – recent run uh, of Thor from a few years ago where someone who is not usually Thor is Thor and is thinking to herself, why am I saying these things out loud? And it's all kind of the great kind of loaded Thor phrases of, you know, lots of missith and thus dire villain and all that nonsense as opposed to just speaking normally. Um, and so uh, it, it reminded me of that. Yeah, I like the I like the parallel with Shazam because that is basically who this is here. And we should maybe pause here and talk just a little bit about this lair here in the the Dream Dome. I mean, it's you know, it's not the Batcave, but it does have some cool stuff going on. And all of these these TV monitors, which is also kind of something that we saw in Desire's headquarters as well. No, I think uh, him and he's looking at all these monitors um, and in the panel where we see Hector, um, it's all kind of these ink blots. Um, but in theory, he's looking in the dreams of all those who are around him because we know from our perspective, he does not know, but we know that this is potentially all the dreams of just Jed and not anyone else. 
there's not that many dreams to see, which could be the reason why the image tends to be repeated. Although the images we saw around Lita were all of kind of hodgepodge of various things, including the uh, smiley face with a little blood streak on it from Watchmen, um, a pumpkin that I assume is Marv Pumpkinhead, because I assume that at all points whenever I see a new <laughs> game in comic, and a bunch of other images, including um, a Stegosaurus and Albert Einstein, and there's a lot of things going on. Yeah, we get we get Mount Rushmore in there as well, which I, I I don't know how many kids are really dreaming about Mount Rushmore, but I guess Jed is, and good for him. He'll grow up to be a social studies teacher someday, something like that. And uh, Neil Gaiman, it looks like himself, at least half of his face um, in the middle of page two, <laughs> no, page one, sorry, in the uh, second line right in the middle on the right hand side there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Half of the author's <laughs> face, which is great. Um, yeah, we've all we've all had a dream about Neil Gaiman before. But yeah, this panel is great, though, because of just kind of the coldness of the monitors um, that Hector is staring at, um, but kind of the abstract ink blots that are on them. But then Brut and Glob looking very out of place, very organic, you know, no sharp edges, all rounded sides and lots of color compared to what else is in the room, although obviously not as colorful as Hector himself. Right. And and while this scene has really kind of put Hector it in the fore here, and it's been setting up the arrival of Dream, you know, reminding us of what the, the plot of the Doll's House is and connecting it back to the previous issue, this scene began as a Alita scene. And we still actually haven't resolved what really motivated her to come down to the, you know, the Batcave part of the, the Dream Dove in of the Dream Dome in the, the first place. And that is that she has a question for Hector. And we see here that Hector's a, a doting husband, right? He, he loves her. He knows that this is a, a role that he has, the responsibility that he has. And so he just tells Brute and Glob to keep preparing for the arrival of the nightmare monster while he goes and talks with his wife. And here he he laments, I guess, that they, they won't be able to take Jed to the circus in the stars tonight because of this upcoming battle. But he also puts Lita at ease about that battle. He says, nobody beats the Sandman. And then he walks her back to their room. And here now Lita actually explains that she's worried about their baby because as far as she can tell, you know, by her calculation, she probably should have given birth to this baby by now, but she hasn't. And Hector thinks about this for a minute. and It's clearly the first time he's ever thought about it. And he agrees, but he's cheery and, and like plucky about it, right? He assumes that the issue is that the stork doesn't know how to get to the Dream Dome. And so he promises to ask Brute and Glob about it. And this, I think, really doubles down on this this thing that you pointed out, Brent, which is that he does seem like a, a, a kid, that this might as well actually be Shazam, a little kid who doesn't know how how babies are made, where babies actually come from. And I, I like Hector a lot here. I, I think he's a fantastic character. I mean, he is really quite dumb and quite gullible, but he is also extremely big-hearted and well-meaning. But this is a big contrast here with Lita, who you know, is clearly suffering from some kind of depression. You know, it might be mystical in nature. But on, on the next page, which then is also the, the title page for this issue, we get some great illustrations of Lita's just blank stare while she thinks about her life. And this is really as heartbreaking as Hector is heartwarming. And I just love the contrast that Gaiman is able to draw here. Yeah. And the life that Hector is living versus how Lita is experiencing things. And then Lita on that splash page, well, on the title page, um, being juxtaposed with Jed, who is similarly not having a good life at this point um, and confronting 
in maybe more harsh conditions than Lita is. It's hard to measure as we go between those two, but uh, the Jed is not doing well at all. And he's being dragged up from the um, basement where he's locked away and being told by his foster parents that he has to put on a show next week when someone comes from the welfare department um, to check to see how well he's doing. And uh, this is kind of a brutal page of just kind of this terrible treatment of Jed at the hand of, of these two. Although I struggled a little bit with it, Glenn, because uh, the checker pattern coat that uh, Barnaby is wearing, uh, which is very much something I'm used to seeing Chris Bacello do in The Shade the Changing Man, just kind of makes the whole thing feel kind of unreal. Which works well in shade and here it's not that I don't like it, but it, it, it kind of it's it's a weird bit that throws me off. Yeah, it throws off the perspective because it, it looks pixelated and it actually looks like it's it's in a different dimension than everything else that's going on in the image and it, it it is therefore actually kind of dizzying or it's it's maybe like looking i don't know trying to read this with 3d glasses on where you know you're not seeing it quite right you can't quite focus on uh the things that you actually want to focus on i found it real distracting in this scene as well and i'm not quite sure why you know why they made that choice other than that you know showing him in this this plaid flannel shirt that's that's open uh we get a sense of a, sort of a, a poor rural family here in in georgia right it sort of looks like someone who might hunt for some other food and 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 so on but it it distracted me from the real awfulness of seeing this from Jed's perspective right being actually you know punched in the gut here uh being threatened to have all of his his bones broken if he doesn't you know cooperate if he doesn't uh, pretend that he's got an actual bedroom in this house that he's not just you know chained up in the unfinished basement and doesn't have a bed or a toilet or enough food and is you know often himself actually food for rats yeah i found the found the the shirt distracting from all of that i really like some of the things that are done in terms of where the image is taken from and it's also demonstrating the size difference between uh, Barnaby as he punches Jed to let us know not only the power imbalance there, but also that Jed is just a small child. And sometimes when there's these close up shots of the face, like on the page before, that could be someone who's even in their late teens. But it's like, no, this is someone who is younger um, and more vulnerable. Not that it wouldn't be any more any less tragic if it was someone in their late teens also being treated this way. But um, it just, it's a very sad state of affairs so far in this issue. This whole scene is just absolutely awful. I mean, we've, we've seen already how terrible Jed's life is here, but even in this scene, we get some information from the narrator that is, I think quite interesting and, you know, pushes the plot along a little bit as well, not necessarily of this issue, but of the the big arc of the the doll's house. So we learned that these adults, right, they are, of course, getting a subsidy from the state for caring for Jed. And of course, since they aren't really caring for him, they're making a profit on that and they want to protect their investment. That's a, a line that we get here in the text. But we're also told that this situation with the basement wasn't their original way of treating Jed, that this is something that they've done because he tried to run away once three years ago, you know, presumably that was very shortly after he arrived. But on top of that, we're also told that they know it's important to keep Jed safe. They just couldn't tell you why. And this is, I think, supposed to suggest some kind of supernatural or mystical power here. And and maybe it's because of the pocket dreaming in his, his mind. But maybe it's also because of his connection to Rose, who is a dream vortex. It's not clear to me 
in what way or why Jed is actually important that they feel almost like supernaturally compelled to protect him, uh, to keep him locked up so that he can't es- escape in some way. What do, you, what, what do you make of this, Brent? I think that you're right that Rose's kind of relationship to Jed is the reason why Jed is perhaps the child who ended up being put in this terrible position. However, the fact that they are trying to keep him safe and they don't know why I always took to be Brute and Glob's influence because it's really Brute and Glob who want Jed to be shut off from the rest of the dreaming. And so similarly in the real world, he's shut off from the rest of the world and he's kind of imprisoned by them. So I always considered not that it's forgivable what they've done, but that these two foster parents who are terrible, um, are being manipulated at least partially by Brute and Glob. Yeah. And in some ways they might even be Brute and Glob, right? They're, you know, in the sense that they're a villainous duo who have uncouth manners of speaking and they are depicted as being fairly grotesque people uh, in the same way that, you know, Brute and Glob are, are grotesque. Uh, I guess they're people too. They're just not human beings, right? But they're these grotesque nightmares. And, and yeah, uh, Barnaby and, and Clarice uh, seem kind of grotesque as well. I, I, yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that's got to be it, that there's, that it's the Brute and Glob. It's not about the dream vortex. Which jumping ahead just briefly, um, I think is the reason why when Brute and Glob are trying to figure out what to do when dream gets closer, they think, well, we could just scoop out the insides of Barnaby and Clarice and hide in inside their skin. But then they realize, well, of course, dream will find us there. And I think it's because they've already partially maybe in a way scooped out part of Barnaby and Clarice, Clar- uh, Barnaby and Clarice, or at least are manipulating them. So it, it seemed like a natural go to for them, but also is something that then would not be far for them to go for dream to find. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'd love to hear other theories from from listeners too, though. If you want to hop on the forum and let us know why you think the Barnaby and Clarice felt compelled to to protect their investment here, this sort of supernatural or sort of mystical com- compulsion that they have. Well, now it's time to get back to the impending showdown between Dream and Brute and Glob. And this scene gives us one page here from the perspective of Brute and Glob, and then another page from the perspective of Dream. And we learn that there are barriers that prevent Dream from just you know, walking into this pocket dreaming that Brute and Glob have made inside of Jed's mind, and that these barriers are technically constructed by Jed himself. And this is something that he does in his effort to escape from the physical world that is obviously such a, a torment and, and trauma to him. And Dream admires this craft. But even though he admires the the work, he is still going to get in and he's definitely going to punish Brute and Glob. But he's going to have to worm his way in slowly if he doesn't want to break the barriers. And we're going to get more on that in just a moment. But there is also another way that he could get in, which is if someone inside says his name. And this actually almost happens because Brute starts to say Lord Morpheus, but Glob stops him. Uh, Glob is clearly the brains of the outfit. Brute, I guess, is just, well, you know, the, the Brute. He's the muscle, right? But this is an interesting item in our catalog of powers that Dream has, or or maybe rules that Dream has to accord with. Do you think that it's just the name Morpheus that would empower Dream here, or is it any of the names and titles that we've seen him use? I think it'd probably be any of the names and titles, just because when we've seen him in you know the far distant past, um, uh, past interface with um, Nada's people, 
they knew she knew him as a different name. Um, and so I, I think that in the, in that sense, anything that is approaching kind of a true name in a magical sense would probably do the trick. I don't know if dream would, because maybe that's just a little bit too generic, but I feel like kind of for any more formal title, um, of the, you know, many different variations he might have been given by humans over the years. Um, maybe would do the trick. I do find it interesting. They also mention that there is a rule that stops him from just killing the kid, which I think is interesting in the context of we've seen the Corinthian tie up and take the eyeballs from boys. And I've assumed that those boys were left for dead. So I'm assuming that nightmares that dream has created can kill people. But this idea that dream cannot kill people had struck me for the first time um, as just kind of strange given everything that we've seen. But uh, what was your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is a real interesting setup, right? The the barriers are, are working just fine, but the reasons that they're actually keeping Dream at bay is not because he can't break them. He, he clearly can't, right? We're told that. They're working because if he breaks them, then Jed will die. And killing Jed is against the, the rules, right? It's against the rules. It's not actually that Dream doesn't want to kill Jed, though that may also be true. It's simply that there are rules that prevent him from from doing that, even if he wants to, or maybe not rules that prevent him from doing it, but rules that will incur uh, a penalty if he does that. But none of that is clear, right? We don't know whose rules these are. We don't know how they're enforced. And it's still not even really clear what the rule is. So I think, you know, you're leaning into the idea that dream creatures, whether it's dream himself or the nightmare creations that he's made that are running loose, can't kill physical people, can't kill people in the the, the physical material world. I, I'm not sure if that's true or not, though, because we've I think we have seen Dream cause the deaths of, of at least two humans so far, right? We've seen him do this with the, the younger Burgess, and then we've seen him do this with, with Rachel, with uh, John Constantine's girlfriend. I guess technically she was going to die from the withdrawal from the Dream Sand, but didn't he actually euthanize her? I mean, it makes me rethink about that. Maybe for both of those cases, he didn't actually kill any of them. It's just where they were left as they were dying. Or in the case of the youngest Burgess, kind of the way he will live through the rest of his catatonic life. I'm actually, as I think about this, Glenn, I'm wondering, and as a classicist in part, you've spent more time recently, um, although not too recently, maybe, but looking at kind of ancient Greek mores and stuff. But I'm wondering if this is something to do with kind of the privileges that are bestowed on guests. And maybe the idea is in the dreaming, we are all guests of dream. And therefore, while he can do terrible things to us, maybe the rule is he cannot kill his guests. And so maybe it's in the waking world, he could kill Jed, but he can't kill Jed through dreams because that would be not extending to the guest within his house kind of situation. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. And we see that Dream takes his role very seriously and and has a real self-righteousness in the way that he thinks about who he is and about his position and the way that he interacts with other people. I, I think that's I, I I think that's really got some some merit to it. And 
you know, I think to the question of whose rules are these, I, I guess the question I have, I've been thinking about dream along these lines is, are these just dreams rules? Are these self-imposed rules because he has this idea of himself as being this upright, almost self-righteous person who is, you know, a good host uh, and also a good ruler? Or are these rules that are actually, uh, that actually come from outside that actually are the properties of the universe or the rules of the the universe that he simply has to obey and had no say in constructing. I think those are all good questions, Glenn, and they're things that we're going to want to continue to think about as we move through the series even, where, you know, who who gives the rules to dream and what are the enforcement mechanisms for those rules? You know, I can go above the speed limit quite fine, quite often, <laughs> unless, of course, a cop happens to have a radar gun on me, in which case, you know, then there's an enforcement mechanism that kind of catches me. So the question is, like, which are rules that are like, well, you know, I went 26 in a 25 zone, and which are, no, I murdered someone. And so we can agree that's a problem, even if I'm not caught until someone digs up the floorboard to stop that heart from beating, beating. <laughs> Eating. So um, I think it's interesting for us to think about going forward. As you mentioned, Dream is trying to kind of tear through these barriers and go around these cr- uh, traps. Um, I love the fact that in trying to show that it's kind of this difficult a way that he kind of has to move through this area that we get this giant kind of octopus tentacle um, kind of emerging from question mark, question mark, question mark, and trying to like embrace him. Um, uh, just kind of a great little Lovecraftian nod there of like, we need something weird and troubling, make it a giant tentacle and make it green. <laughs> Right. I guess what this suggests is that Jed is actually having like Cthulhu nightmares. He's having Lovecraftian horror nightmares. I I think we can probably safely assume that Jed has not read a book since he's gotten to this terrible house. I mean, if you don't have a bed, you probably don't have a book. If you're not getting enough food, you're probably not getting books. So I don't know. Maybe my headcanon now is that uh, uh, when he was eight and living in the lighthouse with his uh, his grandfather, uh, he was he was reading some some Lovecraft. Right. I think if you're a lighthouse keeper, you're really into uh, uh, the Shadow over Innsmouth and, and Dagon and probably the Call of Cthulhu as well. Uh, and uh, eight-year-old Jed was left unsupervised. It's a whole different read. If I got to think that Jed maybe is a descendant from Innsmouth now, and maybe he's a fish person, maybe that's a whole other reason why he surrounded himself in this way and why it's so terrible for him to be stuck in land um, in a cellar. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's actually what's going on here, but I would definitely read that fan fiction. So, well, we should say before we leave this scene that, right, these rules, maybe not these rules, but the idea of rules and how they're enforced, what are the rules that Dream has to live by, this is going to be a, a plot device as we go, uh, as, as the story continues. So it is something we're going to want to pay attention to, but we can move on with this now. We, we're, we're actually back in Lita's point of view for the next scene. And and here's where we get some backstory. And some of this is information that you gave us last issue, Brent. Uh, Lita is still sitting in front of the mirror. She's brushing her hair. And there's a, a real sense that this is kind of her default mode, that she just brushes her hair in front of this mirror when she has nothing else to do. And the, the use of the visual medium for this is just really spectacular. It's really awesome because as she is musing about her past, we see the reflection of her in the mirror change to reflect whichever stage of her life she's thinking about. And, and this is a really great effect. 
And it's also kind of really sad to see the expression on her face change, because when she is a very young woman, maybe even a little girl, and then at UCLA, she's just got this huge, giant smile on her face. And then as soon as she has on her superhero costume, she just, she looks sad, and then it just gets worse as time passes. And here I thought a lot about, as we've talked about a little bit before, Lita is the daughter of superheroes uh in the original continuity of dc she was the daughter of the golden age wonder woman um and steve trevor um she was in the rebooted continuity post 1984 85 dc universe she is fury who is the daughter of a golden age hero named fury as well so this is kind of she is her own person growing up until she then basically follows in the footsteps of her parent and then immediately finds herself unhappy. And it, it partially, it could be because of what actually happens to her in terms of the fact that her husband, Hector does die uh, in the continuity. And so it's the life events that occur to her as a hero. But I'm wondering also, also some of, uh, I'm also wondering if some of the kind of despair she has is in no longer feeling like she is doing living life as she wants to, or as she's choosing to versus feeling that she has to follow in the footsteps of her parent because of the great power that she has, or this is, this is the downside of the Spider-Man great power becomes great responsibility. Spider-Man, oftentimes we see the celebration of great power um, and the responsibility then is kind of terrible. And this is kind of that turn to 11, I guess, more so than the inverse is just that like the great power brings so much responsibility that we can see the weight, um, even her shoulders, even though there's the cape that make her shoulders look bigger, her shoulders almost appear to me, although it may not be true, to droop more when we see her in her costume than they do when we see her in her UCLA t-shirt. But Glenn, what's your what's your thoughts on this image and, and what's being conveyed? Yeah, there is some real sadness here, and and you're right that this this is uh, that this is depicted as kind of a burden for her here, right? It, it doesn't matter if maybe she actually wanted to be an astronomer or a, a math teacher or just you know run a comic book shop. That because she has powers, then she she has to use them. She has to become a superhero. I get the sense from this image as well that it's it wasn't simply the pressure of uh, thinking about her parents and certainly not the pressure from her mother who you know is, is, has been absent in Lita's life but that some of this is coming from Hector as well that that Hector her relationship with Hector might be a driving force that he's a superhero he becomes a superhero and since she can she feels that she has to in order to continue to have something in in common with Hector and really, I guess the big thing here in Lita's life is Hector. I mean, it's obviously true. It's how she's come to be in the Dream Dome here to begin with. But Hector's death is – but Gaiman presents Hector's death here as the real uh, crux of Lita's life. And and the description that he gives us of this is just great. Here's, here's, here's what Gaiman writes. There were the nightmare times when she thought Hector was dead. Well, to be fair, he was dead. And I love that. Line. And I think it really captures a lot of what's going on here. And of course, right, as you told us last time, Brent, what happened here is that Bruton Glob caught Hector's soul. They brought him to their dream world. They made him the protector of dreams. Lita came to live with him. So she removed herself from the physical world. And one of the things that I really love about this issue is that we've shifted this pocket dreaming out of being Jed's story and we have made it Lita's. That even though while Jed is clearly a victim and both 
in the physical world and here in this dream world. Lita also here is shown to us as a victim of Brute and Glob, even if she has also gotten another two years with her husband. I really think that Lita's just a, a marvelous character, and I love that we're seeing this story from her perspective now, that this is, is not just a tragedy for Jed, this is a tragedy for her as well. Well, at this point now, it is time for the promised showdown between, well, I, I guess it's Sandman versus Sandman is what it's being billed as here. So Hector has gone out to deal with Dream, who you know he thinks is the nightmare monster. And Brute and Glob know that their whole jig here is up. And, and, and Glob has a great line about this. He says, festering scabs, pus and pox and puke on it all. We came so damn close. Just a few more years. It would have worked. Uh, Brute is less optimistic about whether their plan would ever actually have worked, but he does say that at least it was fun to try. That's an attitude I can get behind, I suppose, if not their actual actions. And really now at this point for them, the question is whether they should just accept that they've lost or if they should try to escape and make another secret dream world to go hide in, even though ultimately they they know that they just have to take their, their punishment. But what I'm really interested in here in this conversation is what they mean by just a few more years. Uh, are, are we meant to understand that if Dream hadn't caught them now, that eventually their little pocket Dream world would have become permanent in some way, or 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 at least would have, uh, I, I don't know, transitioned or transferred outside of Dream's power? That's really not clear to me, and I don't know if it if there is a specific thing they were waiting for, or it's just one of those things where. You always just wanted more time. And they knew if you're when you're dealing with a member of the endless, as well as when you're residing in a mortal's dream state, both of those things at some point, you know, eventually Morpheus would escape, or even if he didn't, eventually Jed would die. Um, and assuming that then Brute and Glob would at least have to find someone else, if not perhaps themselves, you know, I don't know. What would happen, actually? Because we see the Corinthian wandering the land. So I don't know if they would physically manifest and wander the regular world or who knows. So I, I'm really not sure what they were waiting for and, and kind of how much worse it might have been for Jed had this not been addressed now. Yeah, there are a lot of these metaphysical nuggets being tossed out in this issue. I guess this is what I meant by it's a big issue uh, at the, the top of the show. But they're all just being teased. It's just these questions being raised about the nature of of Dream as a as a, an entity, his power, the rules he might have to live by, but also just how, how Dreams themselves work as properties in this universe. It's all questions. I don't think we're going to get any answers in this issue. But these are all threads that Gaiman is going to tug on later on in the the run of the Sandman and actually weave them together in a remarkably coherent uh, speculative fiction world. And it's great to see all of these questions being teased and being raised here really, you know, fairly early on in in the the whole run of the the story. Well, now we're going to get to the actual action that I've been promising us for, I don't know, 20 minutes or so now. So the so dream has gotten into this pocket dream world and, and Hector is now confronting him. And he doesn't say that it is clobbering time because that's actually someone else's catchphrase, but he does say that it's defeating the forces of darkness time. It does not quite roll off the tongue the same way, but still, I liked this as an illusion. And then as they begin to battle right here in this dream world, the effects of their combat uh, show up elsewhere. Uh, for one, uh, Lita sees that something is not right with the dream dome, but more urgently, Jed knows that something is happening in his head. And he's 
terrified of it. In fact, he's so scared that he actually crawls to the top of the basement stairs and begs for help. He begs to be let out by these people who, of course, he knows have no interest in helping him or really caring for him. And this is a really scary scene. Yeah, it's terrifying because we've seen how awful they are, Barnaby and Clarice are, to Jed. And he must know that at the very minimum, he's going to get punched really hard again, if not worse. And yet he's at the top of the stairs. He's in so much pain. He doesn't know what's happening, but he just – he feels like he has to get out. And as someone who sometimes suffers with chronic pain, it's sometimes you – reach a point where you just you want to get out and what you want to get out of is yourself and that's really all the more awful because there really is nowhere you really could run for from if they open the door jed actually isn't any better off um as we know he may not fully know um than he is being locked here because it's all occurring seemingly inside his I mean, I guess we don't really quite know where the dreaming is relative for him. I was going to say in his brain, but maybe it's, you know, something metaphysical around his soul, which may or may not reside near his body. But yeah, so, um, but it's just, it's kind of awful. And, and this picture of Lita descending the stairs and things are cool going quite wrong where the dream dome is just kind of, kind of disintegrating or kind of just kind of glooping away around her is uh, it's it's kind of this really awful kind of visceral um, image right and what what really matters here right is that we are seeing that uh, although you know dream i guess we've questioned this but dream is the protagonist of this story right it, it is the sandman and we want him to be you know putting his kingdom his domain back together we want him to to be reclaiming his place in the universe we want the universe itself to be functioning properly the way that it's supposed to we want him to be out here corralling up all these nightmares who have gotten out and we want him to you know punish them or or, you know put them back where they belong might be the better way to think of that so we're rooting for dream here but Gaiman does a marvelous job of showing us that if Dream wins, and he is going to win this fight, there are going to be consequences for other people who we also like and care about, like we don't want them to suffer. And so there's some some real grayness here to even just the outcomes that we as the readers are going to be really rooting for here. And then cutting back to the fight, um, then we go from kind of this horrible image of, of Jed just crying out for help at the top of the stairs and Lita descending the stairs and being confused and something's going wrong to this comical view of Hector putting up his fisticuffs to try to fight an abstraction with a, you know, great H.R. Geiger-esque kind of helm that is Morpheus, uh, who's come to deal with him. And then he breaks out his hype ultrasonic whistle, which was originally something that that Sandman had, uh, and he blows it and it, it tries Dream's patience, he says. And Dream just says, where are your masters? He has no time for this at all. So, but Hector is putting on a great and very colorful show. Yeah, I mean, he thinks he's the hero in this story, of course, right? And he thinks that Dream is a bad guy. He thinks he's protecting his family, uh, including you know, Lita, and then also thinking about Jed as well. And he thinks he's fulfilling his sacred and really serious mission of being the protector of Dreams, even though he's not. That's not true. And he actually announces that he is the Sandman. And when Dream hears this, he just laughs. He finds this funny and he says, oh, humanity, I love you. You never cease to amaze me. 
And this is not something we've really seen from Dream before, sort of joy and and mirth. I guess we saw it maybe in you know the sound of her wings, but we've not seen him really interact with other humans in this way. We, we've seen mercy when he took on D, and you know a circumstance that was fairly similar to this one. But we've not seen him doing a lot of laughing. We've not seen him being particularly joyful. No, we, we haven't, Glut. In fact, it's so unique that in the Sandman Companion by High Bender, which is a tome of reflections and a collection of interviews with Neil Gaiman and, and others um, about the series, there's the suggestion that this may be the only time in the regular run of the comics where Sandman actually laughs, where we actually get something other than just a smile or a smirk or a declaration that he might enjoy things. We get him smirking. We get smiles occasionally. We rarely use, but I think a couple more times get the declaration that he likes something or that there's something about humanity that he likes rare and few and far between, but, but here to actually have multiple panels devoted to him laughing, it's very unique. And, um, I don't know that we do see it ever again. I think that Highbender is correct, but we'll be on the watch out to see when he maybe gets close to cracking a laugh, if not, um, you know, something, something else that is slightly more than a smile. And in fact, he's, he's enjoying this so much. He takes off his helm of office. He stops doing kind of his official thing just to announce how much fun he finds this to be, which, as we talked about, juxtaposed against the terribleness of what Jed and Leader are experiencing, this is just awful. And, you know, there's the question at all times of, is Sandman aware of how terrible his uh, presence is, how, how terribly his presence is affecting those who he's encountering directly or indirectly um, versus whether he even cares about it at all. So... Right. And he's quickly going to put his seriousness back on and he's quickly going to put his uh, casual disregard for what anyone else is experiencing or the consequences of his decisions, the consequences of his actions on individual humans. He's going to get back to that very quickly. And I guess that what he finds funny in this moment, in this scene, is that even while Brute and Glob have decided to to set up their own dreaming in his absence, they've still somehow created someone to have his actual function, that his lackeys you know, almost can't even envision a dreaming without a Sandman uh, running it, at least in some titular sense. And I suppose that is funny from that perspective, but you're right that he is he's not at all thinking about the things that we, the readers, are thinking about, which is that this is going to have consequences for Hector, for Lita, and for Jed as well. And even when he does realize that there are going to be consequences for those people, as we're going to see in just a moment, he doesn't really care all that much. And this is great because Bruton Glob effectively created kind of a parody of their boss. You know, here is someone who's, you know, Sandman, you know, not Lord Morpheus, but Sandman. We've talked about oftentimes, you know, Batman, Superman, you know, it's how you create a, char- a superhero character. You're just like whatever and man or woman at the end. And he has a set of, you know, values that he's sticking by and they're not quite as prescriptive perhaps as dreams rules, but maybe in some ways they are. So this is a kind of a, um, it's, it's a gesture performing parody right now in front of dream himself. However, as they've gone through life for the last several years, Bruton Glob has basically created this kind of 
Jester constantly performing this parody in front of them. Um, and they've been involved with kind of doing it. So in a way it's their ability to make light of their creator, which is kind of, I guess, fascinating from an existential um, way of thinking about things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really is. And, and we were last time even doing some comparisons of dream to the God of the old Testament and the God of the old Testament does not find it funny when, when people, uh, paradise him or, uh, 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 try to appropriate his powers or even even his titles uh for themselves or for others so here's a real contrast uh that gaiman is drawing then where where before we were seeing lots of parallels Uh, so it is an interesting scene here but it is also also feels jarring well all right at this point dream just snaps his fingers and he puts an end to this pocket dream world which is something you know he could have done before but now that he's inside he's able to do it without killing Jed. I guess that is a place where we see him concerned about Jed, I suppose. And everyone inside is now transported to the physical world and and, and specifically transported to the basement where Jed is imprisoned. And doing this actually even causes an explosion that blows the door off of the, the basement here. And uh, Clarice and and Barnaby are uh, affected by this, but it was not clear to me if uh, I guess the the extent to which they are put out of commission, if they are simply knocked unconscious or if this actually uh, kills them uh, because of the the force of it. What what was your take on that, Brent? It's not clear to me either. Um, I mean, it very much occurs to me to be kind of a DSX machina in which uh, Sandman uh, is lowered by the crane onto the stage and in doing so removes those other characters from the stage because no matter what, they don't seem to matter ever again, um, at least for the rest of this issue. Um, so whether they are killed, which they certainly could be given the amount of explosive force and, um, the projectiles that are coming off of that door with all of the metal and wood, um, certainly that could result in their death, uh, or it could be that they are, you know, not unconscious, or it could be, it, it, it's unknown exactly what has happened to them, but, uh, they certainly are removed from the storyline in the equation, which is, it's kind of a terrifying yet freeing image. Cause now they're no longer, particularly when it cuts to the shot of Jed at the top of the stairs where there no longer is any semblance of a door. So now he is completely free to go wherever. Yeah, I suppose it's even possible that they actually just got terrified of this and, and ran off. And what really matters in terms of the plot is that they're no longer there as an obstacle to, to Jed. But I do think it's interesting whether or not they've actually died from Dream's actions, especially if we're thinking about the, the callousness with which he treats human beings, but then also about what are the rules that he has in regards to his relationship with human beings and the powers that he has over them and so on. But I do not think that we're ever actually going to see these characters again and if we'll ever really know what is what has happened to them. So it'll just be, an, I don't know, an interesting asterisk, I guess, in our, our attempt to, to catalog, uh, identify and catalog all of the powers that Dream has. But now really it is time to set things right, or at least right from Dream's perspective. Uh, Brute and Glob, they they admit what they did, though they also try to spin it as if it was all really Dream's own fault for getting himself in prison by Roderick Burgess in the, the, the first place. But Dream, in the end, isn't having it. And so he consigns them to the darkness for uh, a while. And we don't know what this is, but we do see that they definitely don't want this to happen, that they think that this is uh, one of the worst outcomes that that could have uh, could have resulted from their actions and from this showdown. 
Yeah, it's not clear exactly. We just know that it is unpleasant for them and it's something they want to avoid. So it, I don't know if they're being – he doesn't use the word unmade. So I don't know that they're being uncreated so much as maybe they're just being shelved um, and they're – you know. They're, they were a tool when they were created as nightmares, and now they're being placed somewhere and to be left alone. It's 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 like Toy Story, where the toy is never played with. And well, and we've seen Dream before do something like this, right? We know that Dream likes to imprison people for really long periods of time, people who he thinks have wronged him, right? We've seen this with Nada before. So I took this to be I took the darkness just to be uh, this kind of nothingness in which they're going to have to go exist for a very long time. Uh, that it's a type of going to be a type of torment for them that they're going to be aware of for for however long he keeps them in there. Right? That it's not just that he wants to make them not a problem anymore. He wants them. He, he wants to punish them, and he wants them to know that they are being punished. Uh, to me, I thought it was very similar to the way he treated Nada. I mean, that's an interesting thought, Glenn, because I hadn't thought about the imprisoning of not in the same sense here. But you're right. It It is very parallel in that he wants them to suffer. So he's going to put them somewhere else for an indefinite period of time. And given that he is endless, he doesn't seem to forgive things in the matter of weeks or months or years, but rather in terms of even eons. Right. And for Nada, it's been thousands of years, and still he's not ready to to release her, as we, we've seen already. Well, and, and, and speaking of souls and speaking of release, Dream here releases Hector's soul. And so now Hector vanishes. He kind of disapparates, I suppose. And he's headed into death, whatever that might mean for his soul, for his his uh, his personhood, I guess. And Lita here, though, has to watch him go because he kind of does gradually kind of just fade out. And she says, I love you. And I have to say, this was pretty hard for me to take. I mean, and, you know, as, as a reader, I mean, but, uh, you know, it's, it's also hard for Lita to take as well. And she turns on Dream and she accuses him of, of, of killing Hector. And even though Dream explains that Hector was already dead and that these last two years have been just a kind of strange bonus that they've gotten. She attacks Dream. She charges at Dream and actually runs through him, I guess, because he doesn't have a, a substance here in, in the world or is able to turn that substance off. I, I was a little confused, actually, about what was happening in that panel. Yeah, Glenn, I was confused by this panel initially, too. Um, in fact, when I first read it, I didn't even interpret it as her getting past him. It wasn't until I noticed the, the panel after that, that his back is to her and she is down against the wall. Um, so it looks like she has run through him. Um, and the annotated Sandman Leslie Klinger um, notes has a quote from Neil Gaiman where Neil does make clear that she has run through him because Neil remembered at this point also that as Fury, she is quite strong and quite fast. Um, so she has run through and probably damaged the wall. Um, and I guess Dream just managed to either he is not either he doesn't have a tangible form um, or he at least could choose not to uh, as she was running through him. So but initially those those action lines that we were supposed to read as her moving with a lot of force towards him, I thought was maybe a wind that he had created because I'm so used to seeing him kind of expelling kind of forces from him. Um, so I had misinterpreted and thought it was her running into the wind uh, versus just the action lines of her running at him with such tremendous force that the entire panel is is uh, 
is kind of consumed by it. Um, but it's really sad and it's really sorry. And he tries a little bit to explain that he's already dead, but at a certain point he just also gives up that, you know, he explains it. She says she continues to insist that dream killed Hector. And he says, if you wish. And then after she charges through him, which seems to cause him no problem, she said, he says that he'll forgive that, which is just kind of a terrible thing to say to this grieving woman. Cause it's just like it, she didn't do anything to you. Like literally she just tried to do something to you. And again, this is kind of the, um, arrogance, um, of how dream views himself, that the idea that someone would even try to hurt him is something that needs to be forgiven. Right. It's, it's an affront to his dignity. And yeah, I mean, really Lita here is lucky that she didn't get the Nada treatment. Uh, at least that, that's the way that I, I guess I reacted to this scene. And he does say, you know, he will forgive her, I guess, because he understands her grief. And he does also then tell her that she has to go build a new life for herself in the real world now. But then we also learn that he has a, an actual vested interest in Lita and in Lita's body, because he says that the child that she's going to give birth to in a few months actually belongs to him now because it has spent so much time in a dream world, even if it wasn't actually the dreaming proper. This is not okay with Lita, of course, right? And after Dream leaves, she says, you take my child over my dead body, you spooky bastard. And and this is actually where we leave this part of the story, right? We, we leave this part of the story with this promise by Dream that he's going to be back for the child, but also with the sense that Lita may actually kill herself rather than let that happen. It's a dark story, and it's likely to get darker, I think we all know. But I also think that this is a real strange move by Dream, right? Like, why does he even want the baby? Why does he want any baby? Is this one of the rules that we talked about before earlier in the the episode? Uh, I don't know. I guess what I'm asking here is whether Dream is just being an omnipotent, arrogant jerk and you know, taking whatever he wants, or if there's actually some kind of legal precedent for Dream taking a baby in a situation like this. And Glenn, that's really not clear at this point. Um, it also shows Dream's arrogance that he is going to at some point try – well, not try. He is going to at some point – he insists that he was going to come and take that baby. But to declare so in such a matter-of-fact way to this mother who – I mean any mother, but you know who has spent so long – um, waiting for the baby to be born when she was trapped in the dreamland. Um, and also the baby in a way is all that remains of her dead husband, Hector as well. Now that the spirit of Hector has moved on to wherever, uh, it was going. So it's just, it's callous and it's nonchalant, but it also is like a Bond villain in some ways where it's like, Mr. Bond, I am now going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do. Because we're left to believe with this kind of, you know, panel of, of Lita sitting, you know, in the corner covered in trash and the splinters of the wood from the wall she smashed into that, you know, over my dead body. This is someone who now has time to prepare um, and think about how to counter dream at some point coming for her child. And Lita has had a really bad day. I mean, I don't mean to make light of it. It's been an absolutely awful day for her. She has lost her husband. She's been kicked out of the home that she's lived in for the last two years. She's also lost 
Jed, right? We'll, we'll we'll talk about what's up with Jed in just a moment, but she's regarded Jed as a part of her family for the last two years, and she's just lost all of that. Her her whole family, her whole home. She is now completely alone in this basement that we know is rat infested, and that Jed has been imprisoned in. That this is an awful place. That there's been some damage to the house, and she's all alone in this, doesn't even know where in the world she actually is. It's not like she has a cell phone or, or any money on her, right? And she's now just left down in this basement. Like, Dream doesn't even, even though he has actually this vested interest in this child, which, you know, right now is contained within Lita's body, he doesn't do anything to aid her. He doesn't help her get to any place. He doesn't tell her where she is. You know, he even tells her this business about the baby belonging to him, almost as if it's an afterthought. And then he says he's got something else that he's got to go take care of. He's got a prior engagement. It doesn't really have time to to deal with this. It's it's truly awful. It's truly truly awful. Yeah, and as we've talked about. Lita being the kind of point of view character that we have more so than any others for this particular issue, we are made to feel that much more in sympathy with her. Um, and I think appropriately so. Um, but yeah, he doesn't give her cab fare. He doesn't tell her what state she's in. He doesn't mention whether or there are two corpses uh, or two angry foster parents who are not corpses up the stairs. Although, <laughs> at this point, I would certainly not want to be uh, Barnaby or Clarice if you come running down those stairs looking for a fight with uh, Lita Hall um, when she is at this level of rage and with her superpowers. Right. I guess she is still a superhero. So so I guess she's going to get things figured out. But just the, 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 the lack of sympathy, lack of empathy, just lack of any kind of care for this this woman in this situation that he he created uh, is, you know, it tells us a lot about Dream. And, you know, re- literally just minutes ago, he was finding all of this hilarious. So, you know, callous and arrogant, I think, are the words that describe him here in this moment. As we were doing the recap, Glenn, we focused on the action of what was going on with uh, Big Dream, Little Dream, uh, Lita, uh, Jed, um, Brute and Glob. Uh, but there were a couple pages where we checked in on a couple other of our characters, because uh, this is issue three of Doll's House. So we need to check in the rest of the Doll's House crew, at least some of them. And so in part, we cut to the middle of nowhere, Dodge County, Georgia, where Gilbert uh, and Rose are at the side of the road and Rose is trying to figure out what is wrong with her wreck of a car. Right. And so they can't fix the car. It is it really is a wreck of the car. And so they uh, they end up at a local hotel where they're going to get a room. But this local hotel is almost completely full because of the cereal convention. And this is spelled like a grain, right? It's, it's spelled like breakfast cereal. But we get a glimpse of the guest list here. And this list includes the Corinthian, who we know, of course, right? But it also includes, uh, it's got a lot of names. But some of the highlights for me were the Kentucky Devil, uh, the Candyman, the California Widow. And so we know that this is the serial killer convention that we learned about in the last issue. And so here our stories are about to smash together. We're not quite going to see that in this issue, but but they're they're going to smash together here very soon. And I have to say, Brett, that I love these serial killer names that, that Gaiman comes up with here. My favorite of them is probably Dog Soup, though I don't really want to think about what's actually going on there, but I do think it's a good name. It's a great name, although I really don't want to think about it. I think my favorite is the fact that there is the devil, parentheses, Kentucky, and the devil, parentheses, Oregon. That there are two the devils 
Yeah, sadly, no New Jersey Devil, even though that would have actually been fairly close to, you know, to Georgia, closer than Oregon, at least as well, right? Yeah, I was just saying, maybe he's at the playoffs. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably right. I mean, maybe there's multiple conventions going on, or, you know, he's just busy doing something else. Maybe, you know, maybe he's, he's antisocial, doesn't want to hang out with other serial killers for the weekend. But the fact that these, uh, these stories are going to be smashing together becomes even clearer when we actually check in with the Corinthian. We get two scenes with him in this issue. The, the first of them is him randomly killing some male prostitutes in an alley. But the second scene really matters because this is where the stories further come together. So as we've alluded to a few times already, back during the confrontation in the basement, Jed was able to escape because the, the door was blown off. And you know whatever it is that happened to his, his and, and uncle meant that he was able to get out. And so he escaped and he is now on the run on a, a, a rainy night but fortunately, someone in a car stops to pick him up. Unfortunately, that person is the Corinthian. And the Corinthian is just so happy to be picking Jed up. And at this point, I wondered, does he know who Jed is or is he just happy to have, you know, a source of fresh eyes go ahead and literally knock on his window and help himself to get into his car? Right. We've been told that the nightmares who are on the loose are actually all going to be drawn to Rose because she's the the dream vortex. And so it's clear that, at least in some sense, creatures that have a connection to the dreaming have also some kind of connection to each other. Though whether it's a like an you know I don't know an aura that they can see or, or sense in some other way is unclear. But uh, my sense, at least just looking at the images here, was that the Corinthian senses that something is special about Jed, though it is also true that Jed is his type, uh, that, that Jed fits the demographic of who we have seen the Corinthian kill before. I did want to mention, Glenn, when um, Corinthian is confronting the perhaps male prostitutes, perhaps just street toughs who are posing as male prostitutes uh, in the alleyway, uh, scrawled on the wall in graffiti, there appears to be who watches, and I'm assuming the Watchmen, um, but a lot of the characters are, are, are not present here. But again, similar to earlier in the monitor where we saw um, the comedian's button from Watchmen. Here's just uh, Neil Gaiman having fun with the fact that um, people are well aware of and fans of Alan Moore's work as Neil himself is at this point. I will note for readers who are reading this for the first time now and uh, fans otherwise of DC Comics uh, in the contemporary setting – at this time, the Watchmen characters were not part of DC continuity. They are in the process of being um, moved into regular DC continuity um, at this point in time as we're recording this in 2018-2019 uh, time frame. But uh, at this time, it purely would be just kind of a, a wink at the audience as opposed to if there was a bat symbol or Superman where Batman and Superman are in continuity of the world that these, you know – Street toughs live in versus um, the Watchmen, right? It would it would be more akin to if if there had been uh, Iron Man or Spider Man or X Men reference there, right? It's to yes, of course, right? Characters from comic books and characters in particular from a superhero comic book story, but not characters who actually exist in the the world of this story. Though, of course, as you say, it doesn't actually quite finish. So, it, so it, it doesn't actually quite finish in the graffiti there. So, it is really just a nod to us, the 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 audience. 
So, Glenn, one thing that we've talked about occasionally, but um, you and I thought it'd be good to talk about a little bit more with this one is um, the difference that the colorization can have on the comic. Um, so you and I are both reading this in collections of the doll's house that we purchased um, or that were printed in the kind of uh, late nineties, early aughts. But we also uh, for reference have the Sandman omnibus, which has the recolorization that was done for the absolute Sandman. Um, and there are some cases where it's kind of striking what the different color will do to how I'm inferring um, information from a given panel. So I just want to talk about a couple of these with you. Um, so even on the first page, Lita's nightgown, um, which is kind of a, you know, a basic blue, um, in the comic, um, which, you know, works very well, particularly at signifying depression, but it's got a kind of slight bit more of a green tinge to it in the absolute Sandman. I kind of like the blue better for communicating the depression, but the green makes it stand out more from some of the blues and, and kind of purples of the rest of the dream world she's in. So it almost makes her seem to stand out more from the backdrop and be more real in some ways. And then when we cut to uh, Hector standing, looking at the universal dream monitor in the original colorations, the monitors are very kind of gray or blue gray. It's very cold. They have kind of a reddish Brown kind of color to them in the recolorized though, um, which makes it seem in some ways less cold. Um, it's a little warmer, but it also shares color a lot with what globs coloration is. So it almost feels like it's something that came out of him and makes it feel a little bit more organic, even though it's got straight edges to it. But uh, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on those particular things? Yeah. Also in the, the image of Hector, his, his costume has changed tone a little bit in the original coloration. It is a bright yellow and a bright red. I mean, it is very classic, you know, tights and, and capes superhero look to it. Whereas it's the, the yellow in particular is a little more muted. It's like a, like a mustard, yellow in the the uh, touched up the version the redone version the recolored version and although i think it probably looks aesthetically nicer uh, i think in the original version it goes better with the character he's performing here as you know the sandman as the hero of this world the protector of this world and also with with lita's uh, nightgown here I, I the the blue does look very good in the original version but i do think in the redone version the green actually looks fairly sickly but i think actually even more than the color of her nightgown what matters is the way that the, the color of her backgrounds have changed so in the original there's a lot of fuchsia uh, a, a lot of and a lot of purple uh behind her but in the redone version, the recolored version, it's all much more muted. It's actually blues and greens behind her. And then it gives the sense then that even the world that she's in is this cold, almost colorless place, this place that's actually kind of numb. And she looks just even number in it for the colors there. So I think there are some some good choices that have been made in the, the recoloring, uh, but then also maybe some some choices that were, were less good. I guess that's probably how we feel every issue, but they did seem to stand out more in this issue than they have in any of the others. Yeah, and then when we cut to the kind of two pages where there is the external shots in the bottom row on each of the Dream Dome, and it's very industrial and you know it's kind of spherical but with pointy bits um off of it but then the 
dream world that uh, is inside Jed's head, at least in the recolorized, it's it's just shades of purple, um, which I quite like those tones, but it's in some ways kind of blander and less chaotic than where there's a lot more kind of pinks plus purples in the original colored. Um, and I also think that the original colored looks a lot like it's a, a storm in space in a Star Trek sense. So this is something that uh, if there's ever an opportunity for you and Valerie on a Lower Decks podcast, check it out at claytemplemedia.com. Um, have a chance to talk about how this lines up with other Star Trek storms that I'd be interested to get your opinion. <laughs> yeah, it does have some of the colors of the, the Mutara Nebula from Star Trek to the, the Wrath of Khan here. And I think you're right that the, the image in the original is better because, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's got pink, maybe magenta even in there, hot pink, you know, we might call it, but it looks trippy. Right. And, and that I think conveys a sense of, of, of the mystical or sense of the supernatural, sense of the strange more than the, the purple does, even if the purple actually is something that I might, you know, be more likely to use to decorate my wall. And then we talked before about the kind of eh, slightly off putting checkered pattern for the plaid of Barnaby's coat. Um, in the original version, it's the green with black in the recolorized, uh, it is kind of a red with black, which is a little bit more traditional for uh, a plaid shirt. So maybe it stands out a little bit less with the recolorized. Again, I can't decide. And the, the way the checkered is done mainly because it reminds me a lot of some of the coloration going on with shade, the changing man. It reminds me very much that I'm looking at the art of uh, Chris Pacello, which I like, but here I, I, I'm not sure it works quite as well for me. But uh, do you have a preference between the green versus the red? Well, what else is interesting here in the, the recolorized version is that Clarice and Jed have also changed their clothes in this this scene. You know, you can look at just the one panel where we have all three of them. Uh, this is the panel where uh, Barnaby has is, is got Jed by the, by the hair here. So... In the original, uh, Jed's shirt is white and Clarice is uh, wearing a, a really kind of like topaz uh, blue dress with a kind of pink apron on it. But here they've both been put into green, actually. She's wearing a green, a, a green dress, a dark green dress with a, a light green apron that's actually kind of the same color as Lita's nightgown in the recolorized version as well. And then Jed's uh, t-shirt is has been turned to green. And I, I, I wondered if that choice was made first and then there was a decision to then, well, like if we've put the rest of them in green, we need to, we need to redo the color on, on Barnaby's shirt to make it not green and red is the way to go. I'm, I'm not really sure, you know, what's gone on with, with the choices they've made here, but they also stand out, I guess in part because Barnaby's shirt stands out so much, but it does lend a different emotional tone to the panel to begin with. Yeah, the original panel, as you said, Clarice, it looks very unnatural what she's wearing, which if you want them to come across like they're unnatural, like maybe they're the, under the influence of Brute and Glob more so than they realize, then perhaps her having that kind of color outfit is one thing. On the other hand, it kind of makes it more cartoony and it's almost more realistic in some ways to have the green that she has in the more recolored as well as I guess the switch to Jed's shirt being green, which I actually had not noticed before Glenn. Um, but I'm wondering if, you know, the decision to maybe, maybe they started there with the decision to stop him from wearing white because white will 
show all of the dirt far more readily than green might um, if he's sleeping in the rat infested basement. Yeah. And I thought the, the, the white shirt really actually is probably more apt for the situation that Jed is actually in, right? Where he'd be, basically it's, it's a white t-shirt, but it's a, it's an undershirt, right? That probably came in like a three pack and they gave the other two to the, the actual kid that they, they have and care about and then gave one of them to Jed. Whereas this green shirt is a shirt that they probably bought individually. Uh, although it might be a hand-me-down or something like that, though the white shirt really, to my mind, cements that Jed just gets cast-offs of like the the bare necessities here. The panel where Lita is combing um, her hair and thinking about herself over time, and and you know, kind of remembering the happier moments. Um, in the original, there was um, a little bit more color added to the, particularly which is at UCLA, lights around the outside of the mirror. While it's desaturated, the color is gone from those lights in the redone version. Um, and again, her costume is kind of made a little less colorful and um, a little um, more muted, um, similar to Hector Hall's um, sitting in front of the mirror um, in the color recolorized as well. Do you have a preference, Glenn, between... Um, those in terms of the recolorization for that? I think I prefer it with the lights off because that's actually what it looks like to me is that the lights are on, you know, it's this is kind of a makeup mirror, right? Where the light comes out of it so that you can you can see what you're doing. I think probably for most of us, we've we've seen something like this uh, more on TV, right? It's like a, like a dressing room for, you know, a, a TV star or a pop star, you know, getting ready to go out on stage, something like that. I, I think I like it better with the lights off, actually. It gives a, a sense of, of, of sadness here. And, and with the, the recoloring of her costume as well, they've actually inverted the, the color scheme. I mean, it's always been red and yellow, but she was wearing a sort of red suit with yellow accoutrements. And in the recolored, they've given her a sort of yellow suit with red accoutrements. And that actually makes it match Hector's. His suit is also yellow with red accoutrements. And so now, even more so than before, they actually look like a duo. They look like a team. Like they're basically just wearing a sort of his and hers version of the the same costume. And I like that touch actually quite a bit. Yeah, I like that touch too, Glenn. Uh, The other thing that strikes me more in the recolorized than it does in the original. As you mentioned, um, it does seem like maybe the lights are off uh, versus on, but it also makes me think that we are with Lita staring from the other side of the looking glass into the colorful real world. Cause when, before we've seen her sitting in front of a mirror, it's the desaturating, um, and even Corinthians glasses. It's when you're seeing through things that you have that kind of bluer tint to things. Um, and so we feel like perhaps she's remembering things that were the real world. Um, and this is kind of an acknowledgement or a wink that, um, all of these things that she's experiencing are when she is not really in the real world. This is kind of her internal, um, monologue and viewpoint of things. Well, I think this is also underscored by even just changing the backgrounds of this image where it's all actually very purple in the original version. And here it's all actually this kind of like sickly green, this kind of pale green, even that her nightgown is something else that's that's different here, too, is that her hair is clearly white, uh, the whiteness of her hair, which is seems premature, is emphasized in these images where it actually has kind of a bluish tint in the original. And so I think all of what we've done here with the the recoloring is to emphasize the kind of dourness, really the sense of of depression that we've got here. And I think 
I think overall that's a, a big improvement. But there are a couple of other panels that we want to look at here and look at the way that they've they've been changed uh, in these two different versions. What's the next one you want to talk about? So one of the things that struck me is um, when uh, Morpheus dispenses with Hector's spirit once they're back in the real world after the explosion. Um, in the original, there's kind of a lot of kind of pink with a little bit of orange. It almost looks like he's burning, um, whereas it's kind of this smoky bluish color as he's disapparating in the recolorized it it looks a lot more painful um probably because i associate with fire uh the way he looked in the original and so i almost feel that from leader's perspective it it seems worse what's going on in the original than from dream's perspective kind of the like no he's just kind of being blown away like he's a leaf and it's the fall in the um uh in the recolorized yeah there's a real sense of being consigned to hell in the the first one as opposed to simply becoming a a a, a shade simply becoming a, a a ghost right it's it's a lot more ethereal in the the recolored version than it is in the original version and and i think it i think it conveys more accurately the sense of what's actually happening to Hector here, at least from Dream's perspective. Which is, it's equally terrible for Lita, but it's just, it doesn't, I think it's better to have it not strike that he is clearly going to a place that is more kind of bloody or fiery or rather than just he is going away. Um, so I think that that is an improvement. Right. It's a, it's a lot more neutral, right? And we've seen him literally on the same page, you know, consigning Brute and Glob to something that we know is going to be awful. And I think it's important to, to make it clear that that's not the same exact thing that's happening with Hector, that what Dream is doing to Hector is simply restoring the natural order of things, that it's not, he's not actually punishing Hector. He's just restoring things. Well, there's another of these panels where the the color scheme has been dramatically altered from the original to the the recoloring. And it's actually the panel that I had selected when I was preparing for us to do our our traditional uh, favorite panel talk here. And this is when the, the, the Dream Dome is kind of being torn apart. And it's this panel where Lita is descending the, the stairs and is things are disintegrating ar- around her. And, and what we see here is her descending these stairs that actually exist in a kind of nothingness while there's this purple goo that's kind of just hanging around the stairs. It almost looks like blood plasma to my mind. And there are a number of things that I really admire about this panel, but the emotion that this all suggests to me is loneliness. And it makes me really pity Lita here as you know her world is literally falling apart and no one is there for her. But I also like this image much better in the redone, the recolored version, because the background color is very different, right? In the original, it's it's yellow, and we get the contrast with the purple, which which is a color scheme that we've seen a lot here in in the comic book. It, you know, this kind of contrast with with purple and yellow. But in the redone version, the the background is just a lighter shade of purple, so it's kind of purple on purple. It's almost like a I don't know a, a lilac or a lavender or something like that, and it just again looks colder and more lonely to me, and I like that it emphasizes that rather than the color contrast. Glenn, that's my favorite panel actually as well. For similar reasons, she just looks far more isolated. Um, and it, it feels more dour and sad when it's got the recolorized with the kind of, uh, lilac purple behind her, um, with the kind of mustardy yellow, it's more chaotic. It's more confused. I'm not quite sure what's going on. Um, the yellow, 
maybe is to play off of the panel directly above it where Jed is also on stairs and uh, in really bad shape. And there is yellow coming off of the light in the, in the uh, basement that he is in. Um, but otherwise the only times we're seeing yellow are kind of her in her superhero outfit and Hector in his. And that feels like more of a position than of strength and comfort. So I like the uh, recolorization here. And I really like this image um, of Lita alone on stairs, asking for help, confused as to what's going on. I also was thinking about in this image. So she first says hello then she asked for Brute and Glob, and then she asked for Hector. Probably that's because Hector went off to fight the dream monster from beyond or whatever, um, they, or the nightmare um, from the outer id, inner id. Um, <laughs> but under id, uh, went off to fight uh, the dream monster from, or the nightmare from the uh, under id. But. I'm wondering if subconsciously it's also that she knows that Brute and Glob are actually more aware of what's going on and in some ways more real than Hector is at this point where Hector, you know, is, is, is not, he's well-meaning and his, you know, his soul is trapped here. So it's not that he is absent, but, uh, uh, he is not necessarily receptive when she has pointed out concerns before. Yeah, I had this same reading I, that that it is, although literally about the fact that Hector is supposed to be not present in the Dream Dome at the, the moment, I do have the sense that she knows on some level that Brute and Glob are really calling the shots around here, that Hector is uh, kind of adult. I mean, maybe he was like that in real life, too, uh, but that he isn't going to be the person who can tell her why everything is is falling apart. And, you know, one of the things that I do really love about this image as well, as you pointed out, is its juxtaposition with the real world stairwell that Jed is on at the same time. And we get these two characters who are going to be the two characters who are really going to suffer the most from the results of this story, from the the, the effects of the dissolution of this dream world, uh, are doing the, the, the exact same thing here in this exact same moment that they're they're kind of alone they're isolated on these stairs it's a it's a it's a marvelous panel and this is the first time that i think we've actually both chosen the same panel as our favorite as our favorite panel but i, I guess it works here because we've, we've really talked about i don't know half a dozen panels here uh doing this comparison that seems so important to do for this issue yeah and there's a lot of great panels but uh, i just kept coming back to that one um so that on the cover glenn i mean what are your thoughts whose eye is this um and how much does it hurt you to stare at a bunch of pins being directed at an eye? Yeah, right. For the second issue in a row, I really have no idea what's going on here with the Dave McKean cover, though I think that's probably just going to be true for the entirety of The Doll's House. Uh, we should describe this uh, for, for people who don't have it in front of them or aren't reading along with us. There is here a close-up of an eye that is surrounded by blackness, and it does uh, yeah, it looked like the eye has pins going into it, almost uh, the way that you, you know, sort of pins that you might use uh, to to pin a butterfly into your collection of of uh, of dead butterflies. Uh, but then next to this eye, and that is painful to look at, by the way. But next to the eye, on the other side of the panel, is like some parts of a doll, like 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 they're ceramic body parts. But on top of that is a rat skull. Uh, I don't really 
have a whole lot of idea what's going on here other than to say that, you know, we've had in this issue as well, a close up of Lita's eye. And so, if, you know, if we're looking in the issue, if we're looking in the story for other places, we see these images, that's where we see the eye. So perhaps this is supposed to be Lita's eye that's kind of pinned open, maybe in some way, or certainly is being hurt, right? It's causing, causing pain. And we've, seen how she is in a lot of pain, both in this dream world that she's in, and then also when she's removed from it is going to be in more pain. We've also seen a rat, you know, down here in the the basement. And of course, right, we have the image of a doll again, which is all over this. I mean, it is called the the doll's house after all. And of course, the dream dome itself is kind of a a doll's house in that sense. But I'm not sure that all of that really means anything. I've just kind of pointed to other places where we see these images. I don't know. What (laughs) what, what do you have here, Brent? I mean, my thoughts were that it might be Lita's eye or it might be that it's Jed's eye. And you know, because it's just drained and tired from being beaten by his foster parents, as well as his eye is being pulled open because literally it is his kind of imaginative fodder that is the thing that allows Brute and Glob to continue to exist, um, kind of hidden away within his kind of psyche and his dreams, which also then if they're the ones who are influencing Barnaby and Clarice to keep him, you know, stuck down there, he's just, he's, he's just in constant torment by these things that are fueling off of him. Um, the doll itself, kind of the misshapen pieces of the doll with the, the rat skull, um, I interpreted more to be kind of the, the plaything fake monsters that we saw last issue and that, um, Hector Hall was told to believe that Morpheus was this issue or we've, it's something from the underid, um, that should qu- quickly be dispensed with, with a, with a whistle from the ultrasonic whistle. Um, uh, so it's just playing that concept. Um, but it's, it's a grisly photo, um, because of the eyes with all the pins and also because of, in, in around the outside, there's kind of a collection of kind of paper or kind of, that's got a reddish tones that looks kind of like raw meat, um, which just looks painful to me too. Um, even though I do occasionally like, uh, a fairly raw um, piece of steak. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right to emphasize the kind of painfulness of this. All of the covers here for the doll's house are going to be just uncomfortable, just unpleasant. And this is a story about people being in pretty unpleasant situations. And I think as we see at the end of this issue, things are about to get a lot more unpleasant for Rose and her family here as they've they've wandered into a serial killer convention which is surely got to be on your uh, your top 5 list of places you would least like to accidentally end up so let's talk about the title glenn you already mentioned that in some ways the uh, dream dome is its own dollhouse as well and here we have the title playing house um so what are your thoughts on the many things i feel like this is almost like a childhood magazine um what was that a scholastic magazine where it's like circle all of the instances of playing house <laughs> yeah that's exactly what we're doing here right and playing house you know this is a, a term that we use when we're talking about kids really who are are uh pretending to be adults and who are doing things like you know you you know using their their toys to pretend to to prepare a meal or something like that right and so you know playing house means uh it's an imaginative play but it's pretending to be a family and we see 
a lot of that in this issue, right? This matters perhaps, you know, the most here in this issue with the Dream Dome where Hector and Hippolyta have been playing house, right? They've been pretending to be a family, even though Hector is dead and their baby can't even be born here. Uh, they've also been pretending to be a family with Jed, who, of course, desperately yearns for a loving family. But we also see his in-prisoners, uh, you know, Barnaby and Clarice, telling Jed that he's going to have to play house when the state social worker visits, that he's going to have to pretend to be a family, pretend like he's actually a member of this family, when in fact, he's really not. Th- those were the two places this jumped out to me the most. W- what were some others that you found? I mean, I think those were the biggest. There's the playing house that's going on in the dream, um, in the dream dome. There's the playing house that's going on with Barnaby and Clarice and wanting Jed to pretend for the sake of the welfare worker. Um, there's Brute and Glob who are pretending to have their own part of the dreaming. Um, and so, and with their own playing house with their fake boss that is Hector. Um, Oh yeah, that that's great because right, that's even the source then of Dream's laugh at Hector. Right, Hector's kind of playing house in that sense, but really it's Brute and Glob who are playing house. Uh, that they've designated roles for like their other you know friends, their dim-witted friends to to have, and Hector is kind of dressing up as the the Sandman, and that's that's what Dream finds so funny. And in fact, I think we've all been there. We've all been in some situation where we have uh, been observing kids play, doing some kind of imaginative play, and realizing that although they've got some of the that they've got some of the bones of what it's like to be an adult, like they don't have the real substance of it down and they're using terms incorrectly or something like that. And we laugh at that. It's something that amuses us. That's kind of how Dream is laughing at Hector Hall here as well. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a great catch. But I think now that we have completed the catalog of places where people are playing house and have talked about a lot of panels here, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Heltz. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this issue. And we also asked a, I don't know, literal ton of questions here about the metaphysics of this speculative fiction world here. You know, what are the rules? What properties of this universe? What are Dream's powers? What are the things that we can extrapolate from all of these uh, sort of tidbits that Gaben gives us here? We would love to hear your uh, spoiler-free thoughts about those things on the forum. And if you'd like to support the network, please check us out on patreon.com slash Media. And we're still at the place in the series where occasionally, um, I think we're actually routinely still, um, the title of the issue announced on the last page of the current issue is not the title of the actual issue coming up. Um, and so we're told at the ish- end of issue 12 that we just finished that the next uh issue of Sandman will be the prior engagement, which uh, leads us to believe that this is what Sandman was so hurriedly, hurriedly heading off to after he had decided to mostly ignore Lita's very legitimate concerns. Um, but next time for Doll's House Part 4, the actual title of the issue will be Men of Good Fortune, which in some ways makes it even more terrible um, that he is leaving this poor pregnant woman um, who is confused and sad alone if he's just going to go hang out with the boys. Right. And and we are actually going to see what this prior engagement is, is it will turn out that Dream has a longstanding prior engagement here, though I don't think that excuses his actions uh, towards Lita here at all. But until then, until next time, pleasant dreams. <laughs>